0: Good afternoon, and welcome to Suite 212 on Resonance 104.4 FM, London's most interesting, innovative and intelligent radio station. Suite 212 is a monthly programme that looks at the arts in their social, cultural, historical and political contexts, named after a film by Nam June Pike, who's often credited as the founder of video art. Our focus is usually on modernist, postmodernist, and contemporary literature, film, visual art and composition, but regular listeners may have noticed that I'm not playing our usual theme music, which is Ous by Fenes. Instead, you can hear the Peel version of Garden by The Fall, as this month's episode is dedicated to the group's frontman, Marky Smith, who sadly died last month at the age of 60. For the next hour, we'll be picking our way through the incredible quantity and quantity quality and quantity of their 40-year discography, thinking about their emergence from Manchester's fertile post-punk scene, and the singularity of their spectral presence on the fringes of British culture over the last few decades. I'm your host, Juliet Jakes, and helping me to reconsider and recontextualise the four, famously described by John Peel as always different and always the same, are Owen Hatherley and David Stubbs. Owen becomes the first person, apart from me, to appear on Suite 212 more than once, and is the author of several books, including Militant Modernism, A Guide to the New Ruins of Great Britain, Landscapes of Communism and the Chaplin Machine. He also published Uncommon, an essay on pulp, with zero books in 2011, and I think it's fair to say that neither pulp nor zero might have existed in quite the same way if it wasn't for the fall, but more on that later. David Stubbs is a journalist and author who started his working life as a staff writer for Melody Maker. He's the author of two books that are quite germane to today's conversation, 1996 and The End of History, published by Repeater Books in 2016, and Future Days, Krautrock and the Building of Modern Germany, on Faber and Faber. His next book, due later this year, is Mars by 1980, a study of electronic music, also published by Faber. David and I have also appeared on Resonance 104.4 FM together before, not here on Suite 212, but on the much missed football programme Cafe Calcio, uh, where his minute long rants were a, a weekly highlight. Uh, so it's a delight to be back in the studio with uh, both you and Owen. Hello, both. Hi there. Hello. Sadly, Julie Campbell, who's better known as Lone Lady, having released two LPs under that name on Warp Records, most recently Hinterland in 2015, uh, has been unable to join us today for our pre-record. But if you want to read uh, some of Julie's thoughts on Marquis Smith, who I know is a big influence on her and her work, you can go to her blog at lonelady.co.uk. I want to just read a little bit of it here. It's a sort of really beautifully written fragmentary set of recollections and anecdotes and things that people have told her and Julie writes Marky Smith's voice and visions animate the spaces of Manchester are present in momentary scenes in pubs, streets, under bridges, in back gardens and avenues richly evoking the many facets of my home city in a vivid, playful, heightened, cut-up reportage packed with allusions and associations nursery rhymes, history, the supernatural, and so much more. Each Fall song is a new adventure, full of strangeness, like a rich painting. And that seems like a nice way into our uh, our conversation today. I want to talk about Marky Smith and the Fall, starting off in this sort of context of a sort of post-punk, popular intellectualism and popular modernism. At the top of the show, I talked about what our focus is normally on, you know, things that are... Traditionally kind of characterised as high art and pop music not often included in that sort of terrain Uh, But what I find particularly interesting Especially about the four but also about a whole host of post-punk groups joy division magazine the gang of four the pop groups gritty politi possibly even like Delta five and the au pairs talking heads wire many many others all took their cues from kind of modernist and post-modernist art um experimental art house underground film um, and a really interesting range of sort of modernist and post-modernist literature they also were um, reacting to a sort of very specific post-industrial uh climate and um, following in the sort of wave of kind of anger about no future as uh, as famously um, concluded uh, god save the queen by the pistols and the manchester scene was particularly interesting um of course everyone was at the sex pistols gig at the lesser free trade hall in 1976 i was there owen was there david you were there Absolutely. um the sound engineers were there everyone was I there it was about a twinkle but that twinkle <laughs> was definitely there. <laughs> but everyone claims to have been uh, um been at the lesser free trade hall uh in 1976 and come away and formed a band uh and you know whatever the truth of that um the manchester music scene did sort of really kick off in earnest not long after that um you know with the appearance of the buzzcocks and warsaw who became joy division uh, and the fall themselves of course who um for a long time were engaged in some sort of rivalry with with joy division to to be the city's sort of most sort of interesting and spiky and antagonistic uh, and sort of emblematic group um, I wonder if we could start talking here about how the sort of politics and sort of culture and particularly kind of architecture and uh, sort of social structures of um of Manchester at this point um you know fed into fed into Marky Smith and the Falls work um you know Marky Smith himself uh, like Ian Curtis from Joy Division was like an upper working class lad um, went to a grammar school. Uh, Smith worked as a shipping clerk. Um, some of the early songs, like "Industrial Estate," talk about Manchester as both the sort of birthplace of industrial capitalism and its grave. Um, and uh, I wonder if there's there's more to say about that, and you know why why writers such as um, Philip K. Dick and J.G. Ballard uh, appealed to both Ian Curtis and Marky Smith.
1: I think maybe more that if. Ian Curtis is coming from Ballard and Smith was coming from Philip K. Dick. I think it's quite distinct in that regard. But um, I suppose you can divide the Manchester groups of that era between, you know, on the one hand, the sort of clean lines, modernism thing that Factory are doing and that later becomes very important in how Manchester markets itself. And then the Smiths is a sort of nostalgic Manchester, sort of everything in Manchester until about 1964. And then after that, something happens we don't like to talk about it. And the fall don't really have much to do with either. I mean, they're, they're modernists, but not in not in the sense of like modern movement or modern architecture or modern design. They're modernists in the sense that, like, of sort of Wyndham Lewis, um, of sort of you know sort of complex and almost sort of illegible texts, you know, and and and, and that, 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 you know, and, and that being done, the whole idea of him being a pro art threat, you know, isn't isn't in this kind of like you know, a, a working class artist making a protest. It's sort of a working class artist making art that is as dense and difficult and unpleasant and, and sort of hard to, h- hard to decipher and untangle as, you know, Lewis or Pound, whose, whose politics were probably not too dissimilar from Smith's.
0: Well, I'd like to, at this point, just um, just give a little quote that Simon Reynolds brings into his book, Rip It Up and Start Again, which I think is a definitive book on, on post-punk as a sort of quote-unquote movement. Uh, And he is quoting uh, Barney Hoskins from the NME, talking about this era of fall music, which he says is bookended by the grotesque LP and the mini-LP Slates. And he says that Smith threw the listener into deranging wastelands of sound without themes, messages or politics. These records were politics, living conjurations of the class and the grotesque in northern pro-life what the fall's music implied was that the whole bastion of comfortable working class traditions the institutions of barbiturates boozing and bingo could be transformed even transformed themselves into a deep cultural revolution and i think this you know this marks the fall and Marky smith really aside from a lot of um a lot of their sort of post-punk contemporaries sort of joy divisions flirtation with far-right ideology and otherwise sort of you know interest in kind of mysticism and the intangible um it sets them aside from some of the sort of um you know quite interesting and quite artful but nonetheless sort of you know quite sloganeering lyrics of some of their contemporaries you know the pop group were prone to this much as much as i adore them it also sets them aside from the gang of four who marky smith is particularly scathing about in his book renegade Um, i think slightly unfairly actually certainly the first gang of four album entertainment uh, really, you know, comes from a very obviously sort of left-wing and particularly sort of post-situationist perspective, but really sort of interrogates the listener and interrogates the listener's relationship to love and to media and to culture. Um, and then you have sort of Squissy Politi. Early Squissy Politi records are very interesting, very engaged with sort of left politics, particularly in uh, in Italy. And of course, they take their name from Gramsci. And, um, uh, you know, made a real point of kind of crediting everyone who they had conversations with music about or who they lived in squats with or whatever, uh, with a place in the music. Um, I mean, maybe that's quite germane to Marky Smith's sort of famously flexible attitude to who was in The Fall. You know, the often quoted line, if it's me and your granny on bongos, it's The Fall. And his almost as often quoted line to Dave Simpson in the book The Fallen where he says it's like running a football team sometimes you've got to replace the center forward. Well, you could sort of
1: see it as being a football team, but I think you could also see it as being a sort of, you know, a, a sort of factory foreman, as a sort of even grimmer version of it, you know, that, that that you're doing a quite miserable job being in the fall and there was a sort of at least when, you know, the most inter- most of the most of the falls stuff, most most interesting period is there's a kind of nucleus of about four people. And then just a huge amount of people that kind of fall by the wayside and are kind of thrown out from that. Um, so, yeah, sort of as much factory manager as football manager. There's a kind of um, a... Sort of the, the obsession of discipline is very much being part of that. Don't <coughs> improvise, for God's sake. Almost so like on.
2: a gang master, some yeah. <laughs> you might say. I mean, there is something very cruel about these kind of industrial practice. I mean, it's interesting what you're saying going on about Gang of Four and how harsh he was on them and he probably was excessively harsh and later on to people like Billy Bragg as well and maybe it's because of his own relationship with politics that um, you, you know he didn't ever want to be kind of seen as like making that kind of political rock and it would have been a real mistake aesthetically if Marcus and Fall had done that it was quite right that they didn't what they represent is something else that's more subtle it's more about a sort of obduracy you know it's almost like the kind of the you know, the bloody-minded bloke who um won't give up his terraced house even when the wrecking ball has arrived you know, and it's the last thing standing i mean in a sense maybe what's i mean he, he wasn't a good person he wasn't a wholesome person he wasn't a decent person in lots of ways and again it's not about that it's not about nobility it's not about you know he talk about you know some talks about revolution but there doesn't there's none of that kind of sort of banner holding kind of you know the glory of the working classes sort of thing it it's much more sort of grisly and nasty than that and yet, in the sense, it is kind of political insofar as I think he does. At the time, he almost anticipates, you know, the north being kind of raised to the ground. You mm. know, first of all, by you know the sort of what happened in you know, the ravages of Thatcherism, and then later on by that kind of sort of heritage process that takes place in the sort of New Labour years. You know, where you know, adding insult to injury, you know, everything is kind of paved over, and there's lots of sort of. Water features and Often tributes paved to the kind over of the great, yes, the proud industrial heritages of like towns like Sheffield. They're now kind of entirely university towns or whatever.
0: But also Manchester was quite mm. literally paved yeah. over with mm. with this musical heritage. You know, when I moved to Manchester in 2000, mm. walking up Oldham Street past Dry Bar, the old Factory Records bar and seeing the sort of Manchester Heritage Walk where there's like the cows from the Inspiral Carpets and things to do with the Happy Mondays and the Stone Roses just literally mm -hmm. like carved into the floor. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, it's very interesting what you say about um, Marquis Smith's sort of refusal of a sort of cogent or identifiable ideological position. Um, The Fall uh, played some of the early Rock Against Racism gigs and then Smith really sort of distanced himself from that sort of agitprop and the idea of taking... An overt political stance, I mean, in terms of the early members of the group, you had, like, Tony Friel and Una Baines. Um, Baines was a sort of... Um, Baines Baines was an avowed feminist. Tony Friel was involved with the Young Communist League. Uh, and he went on to form The Passage with Dick Wits. Mm. And uh, they're the sort of great kind of forgotten Manchester band, I think. Mm. But a lot of their lyrics are much more kind of straight-up Um explication of an ideological position my favorite passage song is uh, is troops out which um quite obviously refers to the situation in northern ireland um and it's a very kind of clear statement but it's delivered with such sort of intelligence and sort of gusto that um that it's very hard not to well I was already predisposed to agree with it it was very hard not to um you know, I think they were they're a very interesting band and certainly mm. one of the better And
2: explicitly taking people like James Anderton to task. yes. You know, yes. The chief Constable at the time. And I think in a sense, being a reader of like enemy at that time, it didn't really matter it was fine to have a full because you felt the kind of the politics side of things was actually very well taken care of. It wasn't there wasn't exactly a kind of paucity of bands addressing those issues. And it was almost a kind of a default position really. And he wasn't you know, like later on when Billy Bragg does it, he's like the only person in town doing it. in mm. pool bloke has to take this kind of burden of being you know, Mr. Political Rock. You know, <laughs> it, there was a whole sway that people do, and it. it was a completely different climate. Enemy at that time. Um, when Jean Paul Sartre died, they ran an obituary. I mean, if you look at the enemy, what it is now, you know, this free sheet, you know, this hatless this free sheet. Um, Lots of died. I mean, it was a much more. I'm not. That's not to say at all that people were much cleverer or, they, you know, we had so much more about us in those days. You know, you look at kids now with their phones. It's nothing to do with that at all. It's just that back then in the music press, you could take more liberties. And there was this space created in which, you know, a group like The Fall could be kind of properly appreciated, discussed. I actually learnt about The Fall from reading about them from a couple of years before I even actually heard them. So, uh, you know, to me, they were kind of a concept before they were a listening experience.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's that's an interesting point as well. And I think... You know in a very different sort of media landscape uh, that was a case for a lot of bands a lot of people who are interested in them uh, one of my favorite things to come out of the the post-punk um the sort of height of post-punk it sort was of 79 80 81 uh, wasn't so much the song itself but the idea behind the overload which is the closing track on talking heads album remain in light where david byrne had read an awful lot of things about joy division but had never seen them live or have the chance to hear them so he wrote a song that was what he imagined joy division sounded like um he doesn't quite get it but uh, it's an I interesting th- idea
1: i think that's the, one of the things that links the fall to the other to, to those other groups at that time is an idea which um mark fisher came up obviously much 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 later about them being portals that you know you, that, that that you would listen to Joy Division or you would buy Joy Division records or what have you, and then it would lead you to like you know, literature and film and philosophy and so mm-hmm. forth. And the Fall did that just as much, but it was usually a quite different lineage. And there's certain things that turn up again and again and again: H.P. Lovecraft, Wyndham Lewis, William Blake, like those three just run through like the whole kind of forty years of the Fall, really. Um, and then, sort of really odd, like Victorian figures that turn up and that he kind of mentions later in his autobiography, like Thomas Carlyle. Mm-hmm. You know, these kind of really sort of productivist Victorian um, authors. You know, interested in sort of um, in Carlyle's case, you know, his sort of hero theory of history and, and, and the idea about work and constantly working. There's a bit, and I think he says, "produce, produce, produce." What else are you good for? Being, you know, his his motto, and that coming from Carlyle. Um, you can also follow it into film, you can follow it into painting, you know, the sort of George Grosch style um, images on the cover of, like, Grotesque and Liar Dream of a Casino Soul, and This Nation's Saving Grace, and also Smith's own covers, you know, the kind of scrawled, kind of graffiti under a bridge kind of cover of of this nation's, of, of sorry, of Hex Induction Hour, that they actually had a very, very considered aesthetic, which you can connect I think very easy to all sorts of sort of 20th century art and that idea of a portal is also something that happens in Fall songs that there's so much about it that is sort of about sort of time and space not really not really coalescing I mean wings which I think we're going to play out with is you know um, a fantastic example of this you know this kind of mundane kind of grim you know sort of working men's club world that suddenly refracted you know and, 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 and sort of shifted into being something else while still being that place you um, know, some really quite um, ambitious stuff is going on there. It's funny because I
2: always used to think, having been brought up in um, Leeds, and you know, experiencing not dissimilar things from Manchester around 79 1980 I was late in my late teens then. That to really get the fall, you had to have in nineteen seventy eight eaten a ham sandwich with white bread in Batley in an underpass <laughs> on a February <laughs> evening or whatever. Otherwise, you just you don't know what I'm talking about. Um, but, it, of course, it's not that. I mean, you know, a lot of people that are obsessed with the fall, you know, weren't brought up in the North. We I mean, no, don't very much go through them wasn't. and don't have that, absolutely don't have that kind of background. And yet, you know, or, you know, like fixate on them, you know, so it's obviously a very, very reductionist thing to sort of think about the north, the, the, the fall as a reading of the North, as I quite often do, although I think there's a lot about that. Um, clearly there was something much more universal going on.
0: Yeah. I mean, if it was a reading of the North, it was, you know, a very sort of intelligent and oblique mm. reading of the North. Mm. that takes you through sort of Manchester's sort of 19th century radical tradition Mm. you know the Luddites the Chartists and of course Engels and the condition of the working class in England Um, and somebody who has a sense that that radical tradition hasn't maybe ended up where it should have done or where they would have liked it to Um, indeed Simon Reynolds discussion of Manchester uh, the chapter on Joy Division and the Fall and sort of the passage uh, talks quite a lot about the slum clearances in sixties Manchester um and the sort of, you know, positive and, and not so positive effects of that. Um Owen, I don't know if you had anything to 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 say about Manchester's sort of architectural environment.
1: Yeah, I mean there's um I'm trying to work remember which which fall um single there's one particular single that has like what looks like some sort of industrial sort of back end shed. And then there's this Nation Saving Grace where you can see, you know, there's some sort of um, mills and then the Arndale Centre in the background. You know, it's it's a really, really ugly city when it appears in, in, in full songs, which, of course, it is. And I think there was a sort of, that, it, which, again, makes it very different to that kind of lineage of, of factory records of sort of making it this sort of increasingly kind of elegant, aspirational, modernist city um, and making it a pleasant one to be in, of course, I don't think. Smith had
0: much interest in anything being pleasant ever. Mm. <laughs> well, can we talk a little bit about the full sort of signature sound at this time? Um, there are a couple of quotes in um, the Reynolds book um, that he gives, and um, there. I hope it was okay. So. You know, Reynolds talked about uh, the music being what Smith called the real heavy stuff, drug music mostly, but not blissed-out pastoralism or cosmic buffoonery. Instead, the fall tranced out to the primal monotony of Cannes, the methadrine-scorched white noise of Velvet Underground and 60s punkadelic bands like the Seeds, who had just one keyboard riff, which they endlessly recycled. This is the three R's, repetition, 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 Quipped Smith on the fall's mission statement, Repetition. Scorning fancy music that overproduced mainstream rock of the day. Repetition fulfilled Smith's early goal of raw music with really weird vocals on top. The rawness was supplied by Martin Brammer's thin, wheedling guitar lines, Una Baines's wonky organ jabs, played on the cheap and nasty Snoopy keyboard, rated by Sounds as the absolute worst on the market, Tony Friel's capering bass, and Carl Burns' ramshackle drums. The freak vocal element came from Smith's half sung, half spoken drawl and wizened insolence. Well, no, yeah,
1: psychedelia is interesting because we're talking about. How um, uh, you know? Obviously, as psychedelic Im- influences, but there's never any euphoria, mm. any escape or liberation ever.
2: No happiness. <laughs> no. As I said to a friend, Dave Simpson, who read the book *The Fall*, and he asked him about you know something that made euphoric. You know, isn't some instant something in life? Is I don't really do happiness, Dave. <laughs> and thing, it goes back to that kind of thing. Production, production, just keep grinding <laughs> on and grinding on. It's it, it's 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 almost like happiness is too uncritical a state to be in. You know, you have to be on constant. In a constant state of reproach and work and grinding and kicking and kicking back,
1: which is funny because then they have this mid eighties period where they become kind of a pop band,
2: mm, mm. which
1: is around the time when you first interviewed Smith, I
0: believe.
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, can we can we move on to um, to talk about the mm. sort of the way Marky uh, Smith? I mean, I always thought
2: when when he made that kind of transition, I mean, it's hard to really tell what was going on. I mean, obviously they've been women involved in the fall, but then Brick Smith seemed to be slightly different. She seemed to have kind of sort of bowled him over and obviously the relationship just seemed to be making a real difference t- to the fall and <coughs> a makeover appeared to take place and that was in the start because one of the things about um, a lot of like, you know, the, the early post-punk bands is that there was particular protocols, there was a particular style in a way of dressing and there was a lot to, you know, it was kind of bound up with a certain kind of, even ahead in terms of rock fashion, whereas he insisted on wearing things like, Really, sort of, you know, three star jumpers and pea green flares and all that kind of stuff. I mean, it was a deliberate anti fashion thing going on with the fall that marked them out, you know, from the punch punk contemporaries. Um, and then, you know, he actually, then, you know, so all of a sudden, you know, he's really dressing kind of rather nattly and it's actually revealed as actually quite a handsome lad, actually, all of a sudden, you know, you just think of them as. Pasty rat face, little winsome getting, him all of a sudden he's, yeah, um, he actually looks rather, you know, he does actually look starchy. It does, it's strange. You know, maybe again, that's part of his bloody mind. is he says, "I am not what you say. I am not that thing anymore. That is now. cliche. I am now going to become this, and I can do that, and that can now be the fall." You know, and I think he was able to carry it through as a res- as a result of that. Um, but I mean, I interviewed him in nineteen eighty eight, and and I think I, you know there was always always the same, Marquis Smith. I mean, he was. Um, I said earlier when he got into good man. He was a very charming man. A lot of people report this. He had a very disarming way of the interview. that would always call you by your name. So it's like, you know, we're just trying to make a record Dave. you know, and, 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 and which is something that interviews don't often do, and that's a very disarming thing to do. He's very... and if, um, But he, he wouldn't really discuss... I mean, clearly, all these kind of things that we talked about, we know that all this kind of input, it's not just fancifulness on the part of music critics, you know, all these things were happening, but in a sense, eventually, a full... Interview was all part of the performance sense. It was about, I and mean, eventually sort of saying stupid, bloody minded things, you know. And um, in my interview, he was talking about the, um, <clears> how <throat> the Civil War, that, that ultimately black people were better, that were worse treated by in the North and in the Deep South in America, and sort of little contrary opinions um, generated like that, and this kind of theory. And possibly he just, you know, he disappeared to the toilet for about 10 minutes before he came out and started kind of spouting this stuff. Oddly enough, before that, it was a very innocuous interview. It was things like, at the end of the day, we're just, we're just trying to make a record, David. And, you know, it's kind of stuff, I can't really use this. This is a bit kind of inane. I mean, I think it was kind of a guardedness. He didn't really want to actually talk too much about, you know, the kind of the processes, the workings, the influences in any kind of detailed way, because you think you probably felt that was giving stuff away a bit, you know. And I think he felt happiest, you know, just sort of spouting off about, um, you know, world affairs and expressing sort of spikely contrarian opinions.
0: And that was something that I think at this point started to fall away from the music press. Mm. Um, you know, you mentioned the NME um, mm. writing an obituary for uh, Jean-Paul Sartre in the early 80s, 1980. And, you know, if you read interviews with, say, the pop group at that point, mm. um, who, you know, burned very briefly at the turn of the 70s into the 80s, the interviews would be just as much about like Rambao and sort mm. of French symbolist or avant-garde poetry and about radical politics. Or sort of South American, like agitprop films, or something, um, as they would be music. Um, and I think there is a turn towards the less explicitly political in the sort of mid to late '80s in a lot of British music. And I think that's partly to do with the rise of sort of independent labels. I think a lot of a um, lot of people in bands thought that just being on an independent label was enough of a political statement in in itself. Um, and of course, the fall never really settled on a record label for very long. Ever, there's
1: you know, like you can see that in their relationship with something like Rough Trade. Obviously, Rough Trade would have quite liked to have just been The Fall's record label, and he obviously clearly did not want to be a Rough Trade band and under, under any circumstances whatsoever, so even despite the fact you know half their best records come out on Rough Trade.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we could talk about who was in the band at this point and which records they put out. Um, I think there's sort of distinct
1: Mm. phases, right? There's the sort of first two albums, and then there's the kind of, you know, the sort of grotesque to perverted by language period, which really, I mean, before, a good before and after that, but really, that's what it's all about. That's sort of late
0: seventies, about eighty
1: three. Yeah, and at which point I think they're, they're, you know, they're they're doing like, I think (laughs) it sounds ridiculous, but they're doing modernist art on a par with like anything else in the twentieth century, in those in those three four years. Um, and the sort of Bricks period and the sort of weird indie dance thing in the 90s and then that kind of falling apart and then them becoming a kind of mildly amusing pop rock band for the last 10 years.
2: I mean I was always, uh, those are my years, those my fall years if I'm honest. Um, for me Slate Slags etc was you know, the supreme thing for me to the fall personally. Um, but then I think it got to the stage where, yeah I, I didn't listen avidly to every particular album but by that point Marquis Smith I think had been established. As this idea, as this presence, um, as this creation that was rolling on and rolling on, and I kind of, sort of, you know, dipped in that, that really, you know, more than these specific records, you know, and I just thought it was tremendous that he was there always, you know, sort of grinding along on on the same sort of level as this kind of perpetual figure of reproach.
1: I mean, I suppose you can see him as as two different things: so Smith, as a writer, um, and that. There's kind of flashes of it later on, but that's really about those four years. Um, e- even then, kind of later, the kind of the particular way of like a song title, you know, that comes almost easily sort of parodied. You know, you kind of take like a, you know a, a sort of quite sort of vulgar Anglo-Saxon word and like add something quite sort of um, an, an engineering term or a philosophical term, and then put it in the wrong order, and you have a full title. You know, something's been called "Gut of the Quantifier" and all this sort of stuff. The the um, it becomes sort of easy to do, but it's still deeply odd it's you know that, that, that there's a uh, a sense of what he did with language being incredibly um creative and and and, and original but there's also sort of Smith as band leader, and I think that continues for a lot longer of him sort of trying to run this 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 little firm and when it starts to get boring, then he has to make a purge and that works very well for a long time I think a lot of good records come out of that.
2: But you know, obviously, quite often it's sort of slightly violent personal cost, you know, to the people involved, you know, and it's hard, you know, in terms of like the pop politics thing. That um, he certainly wasn't uh, an ideal employer. Yeah, I mean, mm. I just want
0: to quote a bit here from Martin Brammer, who stayed in the group until April 1979 and then went off with Una Baines to form the Blue Orchids, who, you know, absolutely worth checking out. Um, and Brammer says. What initially started out as a collective became a dictatorship. Mark's a genius, but he made it very hard for me to work with him. The breakup wasn't so much about the music. It was more about how we were being treated on a daily basis. And um, if you read Dave Simpson's book, The Fallen, where he goes around trying to track down at that point, I think it was sort of 60-odd people who'd been in the fall for varying lengths of time um, you'll hear a lot of similar stories I think this is a, a
1: bit of a canard in a way like you know the, the, there's a sort of fixed group most of the time you know if, if was sort of Smith as Stalin there's a kind of obvious kind of Khrushchev and Mikoyan and Beria you know of, of sort of Steve Hanley and Craig Scanlon and, and Simon Wollstonecraft and Carl Burns you know there's a, there, there, there's a group there and there's a lot of people that come in and out and sometimes they have really important influences like Bricks and Dave Bush and Julian Nagel and sometimes they don't. Um, so it's when he sacks those three, those three, four people in like the late 90s when I think probably the most interesting stuff of the kind of post-Bricks years happens. And then after that, he can't really do it again. There's an album that I really like, which by all accounts is when he was by far his worst as a, as a person to work for, which is Levitate, where you can sort of... By that point, the fall had gone a little bit boring. Like well, when, when about this is a, that this is about out? 96, 97, yeah. so um, they make it, you know, there's a couple of albums that are really quite dull it's becoming a, a bit obvious like Bricks is hired again almost as a kind of like, you can't think of anything else to do and then there's this single called The Chisellers which um, there's about three versions of something going going about 15 minutes and you can just hear it kind of there's different kind of statues of the fall and different eras of it, just kind of, that Smith is kind of pulling apart and tearing into fragments and then this album comes out which where the first track is to sort of attempt to do drum and bass um he's already sat craig scanlon and there's steve hanley still in there um and then sort of halfway this through this melody comes out and he starts going if only the shards could relocate and he's obviously sort of trying to do something with that band and that he produces that album um and obviously, it's not really going to work, and the band will leave. And he was, by all accounts, uh, you know, deeply, deeply unpleasant to them. And then somehow managed to conjure a new band out of it that are brilliant, like the Marshall Suite, and especially the Unutterable. After that, absolutely superb. Those of sort of nineteen ninety nine, yeah, two thousand. The Unutterable yeah. is two thousand, and I think is their best album. That's not that's not well known. Like the you know the, the the best album that's not This Nation Saving Grace or grotesque or. Tax induction hour and and then he tries it again then the entire band is sacked again and you have like afterwards this ridiculous album called are you are missing winner um with this like sort of clip art album cover that's just uh, you know the first track is called jim's the fall in inverted commas um you know, it's just like, whichever, whichever blokes he's picked up in a Salford pub at that point to be in the fall, he thinks they're the fall. And of course it doesn't really work like that. You know, the, the, and after that, I think I at least kind of lost interest. Mm-hmm.
2: I always think there's that f- line in the Futures Manifesto about art has to be violence, cruelty and injustice. And I always think there's a fall like that, you know, it kind of, they had to have these kind of sort of bloodletting and these violent sort of turnover of people. It was, you know, it, it was an awful thing to have done and to have had to commit to, but... It, it had to be like that somehow. If it had been any other way, I'm not really sure it would. Um, it, it wouldn't have been a fall. It wouldn't have worked. It seemed essential to them that they had this kind of sort of terrible business of like hiring and firing and abuse and whatever. And abuse. Form. Again, that's a you know an awkward one in terms of some of the revelations that you know perhaps come out. But um, um, but you felt it like somehow. You know, for the, in terms of the preserving the kind of the aesthetic and maybe it would slightly stronger word than the aesthetic. fall, It had to be like that
0: um yeah i mean <laughs> dave simpson makes much of comparing him to brian clough in in the fallen mm. and uh a surprisingly large amount of renegade is devoted to marky e smith just kind of discussing the merits or otherwise of various football managers uh particularly malcolm allison who was manager of manchester city in the mid-70s mm. um there's For also a hilarious whole chapter entitled crisp man just devoted to yeah. <laughs> um to gary lineker
1: well football's another constant
0: right yeah you know absolutely. that, that
1: kicker conspiracy to Sparta fc that it's a thing that's that's that turns up a lot in
0: in in, in full lyrics and one of mm. the most sort of spectacular sort of crossings over of this sort of underground kind of post-punk culture into the kind of mainstream of british life of course is that wonderful um Afternoon, where final score got Marky Smith in to mm. to read the football scores, which is um, it's just sort of magnificently strange. But it ties back to what I wanted to talk about with with Smith in the mid '80s, which is a lot of sort of very unexpected collaborations. Of course, the um, the work with Michael Clark I'm thinking of in particular, um, and you know the way the fall did sort of you know manage to be sort of around mainstream culture and around kind of art culture without being utterly kind of of or in either.
1: Yeah, I mean, for someone that, that 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 liked to kind of portray himself as you know the kind of ordinary man in the pub in Salford, like you know he did score a ballet and write a play, um, and that that, that that there there is that connection to to some, some quite arty, arty things, and I, I do, and in the eighties that didn't seem to bother him he seemed to think in the 80s you could do both. You know, you could be like this kind of, you know, sort of pissy football manager type and also be someone doing ballet. Um, And I think later on, not so much. I think he'd sort of let himself be, this is, I mean, I, you know, never met him, I'm speculating here, Um, but let himself become the caricature that he'd, you know, I think Mm. if, if at first that was a character I think the kind of a sort of mask-eating face thing might have happened.
2: Yeah, there was that there was, there was danger. You know, I think he was actually a fairly obliging sort of bloke. He would actually be up doing things. He wasn't too precious about not doing interviews or kind of protecting his persona. Absolutely. But, I mean, the, the Brian Clough thing is interesting because there is a level of comparison. Also, it's the fact that, yeah, he kept tearing down the fall, as it were, and, and tearing down the livings and the happiness of other people. But, I mean, ultimately, he was tearing himself down the whole time I and mean, all of his life. It's like that you know, there's a sort of weird, you know, there's obviously a perpetual amount of indulgence, you know, through drinking but it's a sort of denial, a denial of a denial of happiness, of fulfilment or whatever, you know, it, it's all done in a certain slightly kind of miserable sort of way, um, because I think you know, you, you have to be in that kind of perpetual critical mode, as I say to him, I think happiness was a state of being uncritical, so you couldn't be happy, you couldn't yet have like psychedelic euphoria, you had to be kind of down and down.
1: A sort of Little flashes of it, I suppose, in the early 90s weirdly after the kind of there's lots of quite nasty lyrics there that may or may not be to do with the divorce from Bricks, but there's there's things like Bill is Dead and Edinburgh Man, where you kind of get the sense that he might kind of be enjoying middle age a little bit. Um, but it doesn't last very long.
0: No, I mean, he's quite scathing, of course, about a lot of the things that were going on in Manchester around him in the, the early 90s. You know, you look at the song like Idiot Joy Showland, uh, and, <laughs> mm. you know, how utterly, utterly scathing it is about, you know, the sort of... Manchester scene um i mean can we maybe talk a little bit about sort of the end of factory records and the happy mondays in particular as a kind of counterpoint to to the fall
1: um well i don't i mean the happy mondays are interesting in that regard because i think that they're just the kind of idiot version of the fall um, i mean not that sean Ryder didn't write some good lyrics but i mean they're they're unconscious and smith um wasn't unconscious like everything i think maybe until quite maybe not so much late on but for most part everything's planned out and worked out and, and written down and you know it's it's um it's not the sort of the, the sort of way that people often talk about working class art and 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 also a way of often a music That's this kind of untutored, you know, sort of visceral thing that Mm -hmm. these kind of people that otherwise wouldn't be able to speak kind of rip it from out of their, you know, out out of the depths and so forth. It's not what he was doing. What he was doing was very, very Mm intellectualised. And so I think for something like, someone like Sean Ryder, who just seemed to kind of like write these surreal couplets off the top of his head, it's totally, totally different. And the kind of, the particular kind of laddism, I think Smith would probably have regarded as... So distasteful you know you you got drunk and you did awful things, but you did it quietly in a darkened pub. You didn't go off and like you know take loads of crack in the Bahamas,
2: (laughs) yeah. That kind of blue sky hedonism thing that uh, in part of the night, you know, there there was a kind of conflation between Happy Mondays, Loaded, and all the various things that came later on in the 1990s. That ironically, was in absolutely stark opposition, it was like right the other side of the sun to something like Joy Division Mm. on the same label. But Bar- Marky Smith is kind of in perpetual opposition and in opposition to both of these things in his own way.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, the factory records went under in, in 1992. Um, and Marky Smith is very gazing in Renegade about, you know, sort of inability to manage their finances properly. Um, Which is rich, I think,
1: given that by the late <laughs> 90s they were going to, you know, him and most of the rest of the band are about to have their houses repossessed. Well, absolutely.
0: Anyway. Um but um, yeah, with, with the Mondays, and yeah, as you kind of refer to, going to record their final album in the Bahamas because there was no um, no heroin there. But of course, there was absolutely <coughs> loads of crack. Uh, and Sean Ryder selling the studio sofa to, to <laughs> buy drugs. I mean,
2: um, the idea that like Marky Smith was on the periphery or on the possible cusp of some sort of immense success, I just think that if that was ever even possible, Marky Smith would just never let that happen. Mm um
0: no i mean you know tony wilson uh kind of famously um had a set of things that he wanted to happen and uh what was it Owen? I mean, he wanted this uh, turns up in
1: a tv program called um new order play at home and he's being interviewed in the bath for gillian from new order who was wearing a dress while in the bath uh, wilson is wearing nothing <laughs> and um, yeah. he's asked three wishes and he says uh To see the revolution in my lifetime, um, for New Order to have a number one single and to build loft apartments in Manchester.
0: Yeah, I mean, Wilson did sort of imply towards the end of his life, of course, he passed on just over 10 years ago. But Wilson did imply towards the end of his life that, you know, Joy Division and New Order, uh, you know, one of their great achievements was contributing to the sort of regeneration of of Manchester, yeah, which is thought, a sentence mm, that couldn't be more depressingly. Blair right, it appeared on a menu yeah, of Pizza I mean, it's, Express. It, it, but, it, yeah.
1: It's, you know, new labour is the fulfilment of new order. That's yeah. what he thought he was doing.
2: This is terrible conceit of everything being all part of the same sort of radical revolutionary thrust. isn't mm. it? It's, uh, I mean, that's definitely a, a time socially. when the,
1: the fall seemed particularly important, is when it was just completely kind of like, you know, bollocks to all of you at that point. Mm.
2: And it was only important, I think, that Marquis Smith, whatever else is going on in having these huge, great dialectical kind of swings and back and forth that the fall are kind of maintaining at a certain level.
0: Yeah. Um, I mean, we have already sort um, t- touched upon how music, sort of a lot of sort of alternative and underground independent music in the mid 80s became less sort of explicitly political in the way it had been during the post-punk period. I think what happens in the 90s is that... Um, you know, music journalism becomes more focused, sort of more narrowly focused on music. Um, I'm thinking here of, of, you know, one of my favourite 90s bands, Stereolab, mm. who, of course, um, like a lot of the post-punk bands, had an awful lot of uh, anchorage in kind of underground experimental film, um, in uh, a sort of interesting line of literature, you know, but quite explicitly Marxist in a way that very few other um, sort of bands from note in the 90s were. And yet you read an interview with Stereot Lab, and by contrast to the ones in the Enemy that we talked about of the late seventies, early eighties, you know, you read an interview with Stereot Lab and it's all just asking Tim Gain what he's listening to at that mm. point. Mm. Um, I mean, David, I'm maybe being a bit unfair. <laughs> you like, know. What's, what's mm. the
1: line from New Puritan? I curse your preoccupation with your record collection. You know, the, the, mm. it, was, it
0: was there from very early on.
1: It's the point I
2: think at which, I mean, even during the, like the eighties, I mean, you get the feeling that post, you know, post-punk is still kind of. Pickaxing into the future a little bit, you know, the the, the rock, you know, the, the rock's narrative has still got a little further way to go. But by the nineties, there is definitely a state you know that, that rock has pretty much exhausted, mm. ecologically, exhausted all of its kind of future possibilities. And by that point, yet yeah, retrospection does set in in a big way, and then it does become about you know heritage in a sense. But what know,
0: I think helped the fall of Marquis Smith to remain kind of a lot more relevant and more interesting, and certainly far less embarrassing than some of their sort of ageing contemporaries. Um, You know, you look at the way New Order, um, I saw New Order several times in the early noughties, and, um, you know, it would be kind of playing their hits and Mm. playing Joy Division songs. Um, In the BBC programme, The Wonderful and Frightening World of the Fall. Uh, Marky Smith talks about why he sat Mark Riley, and just very um, kind of glibly just says how he wanted to play the hits every night. Mm. Um, <laughs> I don't know which which hits he and meant, that's, 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 but yeah. you know there was always an absolute refusal of nostalgia. I saw mm. the fall several times, around about the time that the Marshall Suite and the Industrial came out, and. Um, you know, if you got any old Fall songs that weren't from the current or upcoming records, you get one and it was a really big deal for mm. them to play it. I think I was at Rock World in Manchester in 2001 uh, and they played I Am Damo Suzuki from This Nation's mm. Saving Grace and the audience of course went wild for it. Mm. Um, but that was the whole point. It was a rare treat. It wasn't what you expected.
2: And this is the thing. If the Fall aren't necessarily a harbinger of the future, at the very least they're maintaining in the present, in the present tense. Um, I suppose it's a bit like, but I suppose that again, it comes back to like getting rid of members, shedding old members, getting new members in. I mean, it's a way of maintaining that. It's a bit like Doctor Who, except it's everybody else that regenerates, except, you know, the central character. Um, but, um,
1: yeah. Yeah, I mean, where are we? What was the question? Manchester nostalgia playing yeah. Our songs. <laughs> yeah, it um, sort of. Well, know, I mean. Yeah, I mean, obviously The Fall never had a period where they would, you know, go and do a Don't Look Back tour. And you can just imagine it being terrible, Mm. you know, like them going and doing like all of Hex Induction Hour or Ben Sinister. It would be awful. And the fact that they never did that, I think, is immensely to their credit. And I would be absolutely certain that Smith was probably being offered like massive sums by all tomorrow's parties to like go out and like tour, you know, Hex Induction Hour or, 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 or Grotesque or something like that. or You know, that the, there was probably huge pressure to do this, and the, and, mm. and he didn't. He and probably bought a much bigger house.
2: And there's also this idea that people love, you know, it's got to be the original lineup, the old gang, the old pals. So once again, you know, think <laughs> of, like, shedding all those people all the time, again,
1: precludes that. And, 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 and it's probably preferable what happens in the last ten years of the fall, which, I mean, to my mind at least, is probably the least interesting period and there's 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 good things they're, in, they're, they're they're quite enjoyable they're quite fun but they're they're kind of a bit trivial compared to what what, what was happening before but so much better than like you know four fat 55 year old blokes playing you know she's lost control you know it's you can think you know i'm sure the smith couldn't think of anything worse and instead yeah. just having this kind of you know sort of gargoyle man like you know Ranting with whichever pickup band and wife he had at that point, like you know, behind him, it is preferable,
2: yeah. And I mean, it's almost, yeah, the point is, you know, he's continued the fact of he isn't there, continues existence becomes the thing in a sense. And actually, you know, when, whenever I, I did only kind of touch occasionally on like later full records, but I must say, I was always, I was always actually impressed by them, I was always surprised, I was always, uh, they were always a lot better than I was expecting.
3: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, I remember hearing "Blindness" for the first time, which is on, I think, one of the, one of the last Peel sessions they did in two thousand and four, not long before Peel died. Um, and just think, it was absolutely extraordinary. And there are very, very other, very few other groups that've been around that long that you could imagine doing anything as impressive as as that at that point in their careers.
1: Yeah, I mean, that that that's that's kind of that that, that one. Full Heads Roll is probably the the best of those of of those last ones. But even then, that's kind of things like Imperial Wax Solvent, there's a sort of eccentricity to them, you know, and and and, the, and weirdly they kind of recall like the very earliest fall records, like Eleni Paulu's keyboards are quite a lot like Una Baines's, you know, they sound very, very cheap and very nasty. And there's this, you know, they're the, the almost sort of back to square one of just making this incredibly cheap-sounding music.
0: Yeah, I mean, I've just touched on something that I would like to talk about a little bit here. We haven't got too long, but... Um which is, of course, the place of sort of John Peel within Britain's sort of music culture because pretty much until his death, you know, Peel is is the sort of central sort of focal point for for all sorts of British sort of countercultures and kind of underground music and has a way of sort of simultaneously bringing it into the mainstream, but sort of in this cordoned-off space so it's maybe not kind of assimilated in quite the same way. Um, and, you know, Marky Smith, of course, is... So totally bound up with with John Peel, um, in a sense, because you know Peel was such a huge fan and had them in session so many times. Um, Smith is actually more kind of uh, magnanimous towards Peel in in Renegade, which was published a few years after Peel's death, more more generous than in, maybe I was 99. expecting. Yeah. Yeah.
2: because I think it would have felt very uncomfortable about. I think Marquis is the kind of person that's going to feel really uncomfortable about his fans. Mm. And he's certainly never going to say, thanks, thanks to John Peel. Big shout-out to John Peel. Without (laughs) your support, I don't know where we'd be. He's never going to make kind of sort of matey, magnanimous statements like that. It wouldn't be Marquis Smith if he did. And so obviously, you know, he's going to be a bit sort of chary of like this kind of adulation that he's getting from someone like (coughs) Peel. I suppose with Peel, he had a certain aesthetic culminating in, the shambling band of the mid eighties, when there was that, that Enemy compilation C eighty six, which I personally disliked a great deal, and I'd mm-hmm. hate to think that he was attracted to fall, be- fall because of the I mean, the king of some sort of shambling scene, because I think that was just one tiny facet of what they did. I'd hate to think, you know, the, the band without whom there would never have been a bog shed or something. <laughs> <That's sort of laughs> really well, without know. him, there'd never been a pavement, yeah. which, oh. might, yeah,
0: which well, I think yeah, is probably yeah. equally bad of fate. <laughs> 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 I mean, yeah, certainly the C eighty six compilation I have very, very mixed feelings about. I mean, the sort of idea and the aesthetics of it and the apolitical nature of a lot of it and the sort of <coughs> lack of ambition behind but, a lot of it, I don't really like. Mm. But, but it's most the fall of the, the discipline though, isn't it? It's yeah. the
1: fall without that kind of relentless mm. sort of riff-based sort of, you know, the, the, the level of timing that they had mm. as well. That, that that That's kind of thrown out the window. There's a James yeah. Brown aspect to, to Smith. You know, you could imagine him like fining mm. members for like, you know, missing bits. So and that's not in that's there's, not in the eighties
2: there's no whimsy you know it's all fury there's a fury in the reposition there's a fury in what they do
0: um yeah um owen um you've mentioned to me before uh, a quote i think from someone in orteca about um about marky smith and um and the the lack of a need for for rap music in britain
1: oh well i can not remember that. i I think it was one of Vortec. I don't... So, don't... I, this is a difficult <laughs> thing, but some someone like that, someone mm. that was probably in Warp Records said something like this about, you know, how U- UK hip-hop didn't make a great deal of sense because you already had the fall. And you can kind of understand that. And I think it, it's tell it's telling how it takes a long time for UK hip-hop to be convincing and when it eventually is, it's as grime. It's, it's a completely different genre. Um, but, you know, the... the, the, the the, the Fall is kind of, you know, loops and riffs and lyrics, and very stark and very minimal, and so there's quite a lot in common there, and similar to, like, the kind of more esoteric ends of hip-hop or something like that, you know, the kind of um you know, the way that everything is coded in, in, in Fall lyrics, you know, that you can be listening to the same song from Perverted by Language or Grotesque or Slates for, like,
0: years before you realise what's going on. Yeah, and there's fall songs i've been listening to for nearly two decades now since i kind of first got into the fall um that i i i don't understand i've never come close to understanding but um uh, i I want i want to know and i want to persevere with them
2: i just can say on slate slags you got fit and working again Mm. and one of the lines is i feel like alan minter which a lot of people may not you know. You'd have to be a boxing fan in 1982 to know who Alan Minter was. <laughs> What's great, though, is that... For somebody, for, yeah, I used to get the train... I've every always day. wondered what that meant. I've to that yesterday. I used to yeah. get the train every day from Blackheath, you know, like 10 years ago. And every day when I got the train, there was a bridge and somebody had painted in stark white paint. I feel like Alan Minter on the bridge, you know, <laughs> passing. I was just thinking, I'm sure I'm the only person that makes this commute that knows what that means and why that's there. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I mean, there was a tradition of, like, really, really strange graffiti, wasn't mm. there, in the sort of 70s and early 80s. And Marky e. Smith did sort of work with um, with found text quite a lot and sort of weird things that he found in, like, avant-garde poetry or, or just painted on the side of a bridge. I mean, sadly, the words, cats like plain crisps, never came into his <laughs> it. But...
1: The cover of Hex Induction Hour is just that, isn't it? It's just like a load of random <laughs> slogans that, he, that, he, that should be written on a wall somewhere that are just crammed mm. onto a sleeve.
0: Yeah, I mean and, and and that I think remained a constant throughout throughout their sort of entire career. Um, uh, you know, if you listen to the sort of lyrics on like blindness or something like that, Ooh. there's all sorts of just like really, really odd kind of asides and kind of fractured lines and, and you know, different perspectives. There's a really
1: there's a really late song called Hittite Man. <laughs> which is just extraordinary you know <laughs> And it's another one of those kind of time loop ones it seems to
0: be vaguely about some sort of ancient civilization. anyway it's complicated well mm. we're going to wrap up now because um, we've only got a few minutes left and I having found that we didn't have time to play a number of fall songs during our discussion because there's so much you could say about the fall I really do think we could talk about them you know all night uh, and I would quite happily do that uh, but instead, to play us out, I'm going to play uh, Wings, which is from the sort of late... It's 83. So like 83. So the end of that period
1: where I think they were The late, the extraordinary. Yeah, yeah,
0: exactly. And, you know, just into the slightly more sort of, um, uh, you know, sort of slight period where it became sort of slightly bigger. Um, I think this is, you know, this is, I know, and this is one of your favourite fall tracks it's one i've got a lot of time for as well so um yeah to play us out to say like thanks owen thanks david and uh, yeah here is wings by the fall from 1983
3: The academic rust could not burn them up. But I got pets and the crossfire. Call right on.